following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Many times in our work of meditation, of the path of the sacred arcana, we must face many battles against negative forces. Anyone who initiates their spirituality must confront their own mind. But also, those entities or beings who constitute what we call the Black Lodge also confront us many times in our efforts. Primarily because this kind of work is contrary to their interests, their concerns. There is always this battle and struggle within religion between Ahura Mazda and Araman amongst the Rostrians, or Christ and the devil. Good and evil, positive, negative, light versus darkness. When these forces meet, they form twilight within the initiate because the person who battles themselves must also confront all the entities of the Black Lodge, all the demons of that path, who want to pull the student into the infernal dimensions, the infernal planes. And so this is a very dangerous arcanum, specifically since it is uncertain what the outcome will be. But we know from tradition that all the great heroes who fight very diligently against themselves, like Perseus, Theseus against the Minotaur, Aeneas, and many masters of meditation, they are successful. Like we witnessed in the opera Turandot, 
with Prince Caliph, who faced the twilight of his own mind when he was confronted by all the people of Peking in Act 3 who wanted to steal his light, take from him his powers. So this arcanum is about the battle between the soul and the ego, both within and without. And as we stated, there are two lodges, the white and the black, the angels and the devils. And in this teaching, we have to define ourselves very specifically because the outcome of this doctrine, according to Samael and Vior, is either an angel or a demon. There is no middle ground. We have to really define who we are and work for what we want. And so this teaching of the white path is about eliminating the ego. Lust, pride, anger, vanity, laziness, gluttony, etc. All of the defects we carry within must be annihilated. But... Of course, this is contrary to the current that is swallowing humanity and is bringing people down into suffering. Twilight reminds us of the hours of Lucifer Venus, 4 a.m., which we spoke extensively about in the previous Arcana, as well as the opera Turin No. We can meditate very profoundly at 4 a.m. before the sun rises to achieve profound astral projections but this is also a very dangerous time because the forces of the Black Lodge are very active personally I was in the habit and have been in the habit of waking up at 4am to meditate and work on my mind and many times I would go deep and fall asleep and enter the astral plane Sometimes in higher octaves, but many times not so high. Because there is a superior astral dimension and there's an inferior astral dimension. In the superior astral dimension, we only find angels, gods, Beni Elohim, the sons of the divine Christ. And many times those masters can show us our level of being. They show us in the atmosphere the astral plane, the mental plane, the heavens. If it is clear with stars, it means ascension, victory, unification with the divine. If it is cloudy, it means that we have too much ego. As I said, the mind is like air. If it is cloudy, we don't see the light of the sun. Instead, what we see is twilight, obscuration darkness. And so many times, if you awaken the lunar astral plane, the inferior astral dimension, what you see there is a very fatal light, glowing, sometimes pinkish, sometimes of different hues, like a green color sometimes. And it was a very dangerous time for invocations, because our own ego can invoke demons at that hour very easily. And I've had that happen to me where trying to invoke in the name of Christ, by the power of Christ, for the glory of Christ, 
Samael on Veor. Many times, being in that dimension, my own ego has invoked certain negative entities that I have connections with. Because in my past, unfortunately, I delved, like many of us, into black magic. It's very unfortunate. This humanity has really dived and indulged itself into desire, into the mind. And it's very rare to find someone in this teaching who doesn't have egos of sorcery, who never practiced that art. So therefore, we don't accuse anybody of being a witch or a black magician. Because if we point our finger at someone, we have three pointing towards us and our thumb to heaven saying, look at me, what I am. And so, in this hour, we can invoke many entities that are negative. Because unfortunately, our own egos have many ties to the Black Lodge. And in this science, we are working against that. That current. That tendency. And this is the Arcanum of Twilight. The battle against good and evil. Precisely in those hours. If we are chaste and really serious about our purity, mentally, physically, emotionally, psychologically, then we can't be harmed. This is what Samael and Vior stated. But the problem is that we have a lot of defects. And so it can be very easy. In that hour, you're trying to invoke a, a Christic master, and instead, you get an archdemon. It's happened, in my experience, many times. And that's something I've really fought to work against and have been helped. Because any one of us can change if we want. So in this Arcanum, Samael and Veor stated that this is the war between the intellectual and the intuitive Kabbalists. So what is intellectual Kabbalah? It is the theories and studies of anyone who stores that kind of knowledge solely in the mind. And we know that those people who deify the mind are the sorcerers, the black magicians. They fortify desire. They fortify the ego, the mind, the intellect. But the intuitive Kabbalists develop the heart. They experience divinity for themselves. They know what Christ is. And so follow that very faithfully. I believe we talked about it in Arcanum 2, a teaching from the Quran about the intuitive Kabbalists. Only those who are possessors of intellect, possessors of seeds, ulul abab in Arabic, will be able to interpret the signs of Allah. What is this possessor of intellect? I personally think that's a very poor translation. We think intellect is thought, reasoning. But that's not the real meaning. In a deeper sense, it means possessors of kernels, of seeds. The seed is the creative power of God, the sexual energy, which we transmute in our work. And the shells are the theories the beliefs, 
the dogmas of the Kabbalists of Israel. A shell is a klifah. It is an ego. It is an empty shell, devoid of any spiritual substance or meaning. Klipot is hell. It is the world of shells, of illusions, of appearances. So what is a possessor of kernels? Someone who has real understanding, who is intuitive, means they work with the sexual seed and they eliminate the shells of the ego. That's a profound difference that people don't discriminate or understand. But this is a battle. And many times we have to defend ourselves in this teaching. Precisely because our work goes against the grain of humanity. Humanity has entered devolution into the infernal planes and wants to bring all beings into suffering within the entrails of the earth, within the lunar spheres. As we explained in Arcanum 9, as well as the previous Arcana. They want to feed the ego, and they want to be pulled down into the earth to disintegrate. That is the path of demons. And many follow that way. Broad is the way and wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many go in thereat, says Christ. But straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. That path is Chaya, the path of the Holy Spirit, the perfect matrimony. So first, we must understand these arcana in ourselves. We have to study them intellectually. We have to comprehend them with the mind in the beginning. But then the real struggle becomes understanding and principle from experience. First, understand how twilight in us works when we battle against our own mind. And if you're very serious about your work, as you're working on yourself, you will naturally attract people or entities that want you to be stagnant or to change or to enter devolution. Most cases this happens internally. Not so much physically, but we do meet people in our lectures or meditations or retreats. People who practice sorcery. But we don't condemn them. At least the good Gnostics, the real ones. Unfortunately, in this movement, there's the tendency to want to blame so-and-so as a sorcerer, so-and-so as a witch, a demon, excommunicate him or her. And this has caused so many problems in the Gnostic movement because people are very fanatic. What they don't understand is that none of us are innocent. We are not make sheep. As Samael on Vior stated, we are all cannibals dressed as gentlemen, as ladies who are cannibals as well, men and women who are demonic. Therefore, we can't judge people. But it's true that in this path, we have to change. And so we have to face this very dangerous arcanum by confronting ourselves. So let us look at the actual glyph. We see at the very bottom a scorpion within the waters of the card, the bottom third. This reminds us of the sign of Scorpio, 
which is governed by Samael, the angel of strength. It's interesting that the angel Samael on Veor governs Ares in the head. And the Zohar speaks of him as the serpent, the creative fire of Kundalini, who rises from Scorpio and sex up to Ares in the head in order to make us an angel, a master. In this arcanum, the scorpion's at the bottom because if we fall, we sting our divine mother like a scorpion. We poison her because that power of kundalini above is heavenly. But if we waste our fire, we poison our soul. We sting ourselves. We enter devolution. We kill our divine mother, says Samael and Veor. Whenever the sexual energy is let out, it creates tremendous suffering, spiritually speaking, and it feeds desire, ego. We see most prominently in this card two pyramids, one white, one black. We also see two dogs or two wolves who are juxtaposed against each other, one white, one black. White is positive, symbolizing friendship. The other is negative, representing the psychological eye, the ego. So this is the arcanum of light and darkness. The terrible struggle that any initiate must encounter when they want to return to divinity. In order to elaborate on these points, this battle of light and darkness and how Arcanum 18 permeates the tree of life and the tree of death. I'd like to read for you from a great Sufi master by the name of Ibn Arabi from his book, Divine Governance of the Human Kingdom, where he talks about this precise struggle and the way to overcome it. Ignorance and subjection to the ego abase a person. Intelligence and knowledge raise a person to perfection. But there are eclipses in this ascension, which are caused by the shadow cast upon the moon by the earth. Just so, our love for and attachment to the world and the desires of the flesh cause the interruption of our evolution. But just as the world is brought alive by sunshine, so the human being is made living by the divine light reflecting from his soul. When we compare all existence to what exists in us, and God's attributes manifest in the macrocosm, the universe, to what is manifest in us as the microcosm, the human being, then we see the enormity, almost the infinity, of the 18,000 universes and the small, limited existence of the human being who has a very short span of life. So why did the Sufis say there are 18,000 universes? Because there are nine sephiroth above Malkut and nine inverted sephiroth below Malkut. Heaven, hell. And the human soul within Malkut has to choose, go up or go down. And this is why the Muslims make such emphasis on the war between the believers and the infidels. Al-Muminin, 
versus al-kafirin. The white magicians versus the black magicians. The soul versus the ego. To eliminate this doubt, or better said, sometimes a difficulty may arise. We may lose hope that this path, this trend of thought, will bring us to salvation, felicity, and perfection. To eliminate this doubt, it is good to remember two conditions which are our birthright and which describe our responsibility as a human being. The first of these is the promise our soul made to its creator on the day he created all souls, which the Muslims call, or the Sufis denominate, the day of Alast. He asked us, Am I not your Lord? And we all responded, Indeed you are. From Surat Al-Araf, verse 172. What does it mean that God said, I am, your, am I not your Lord? And the soul said, yes. It refers to a covenant with an Ain Sof, the star of our being, the micro, or the better said, universal cosmic star within the depths of the absolute. Allah, divinity. And we as a soul emanated from that source down the tree of life to enter Malkut and then to begin the journey up the return to our star of Bethlehem, of divinity, of Christ. This is known as the being part dog duty of Gurdjieff, where we must follow the impetus of our inner Christ, our being. That is the original promise of the human essence to God, and it exists in every one of us. The other condition is a threat, a prediction, a menace with which we are also born. That whether we are able to choose the right over the wrong will make all the difference in our life, first here and then hereafter. Both the promise in our souls and our fear of error in telling right from wrong arise from the macrocosm and even beyond. They come directly from the origin of all and everything, including the right and the wrong and the divine justice itself. If we listen to the soul, what is given its promise to its Lord, and follow what it ordains for us throughout our lives, then we will find ourselves obeying what God commands and forbids. All the rest of the created universe follows its destiny without having a choice. This is mechanical creation, mechanical forces, evolution, devolution. But obviously this path is about revolution. It is by following our soul that we are at one with the divine harmony. So remember our being who says, am I not your Lord? And the soul says, yes, I affirm it. That is how we overcome twilight. Remember God. Remember the presence of divinity in moments of great trial and temptation and crisis. When in the internal planes we must defend ourselves with prayer and conjuration. As we began this practice today, we did the conjurations of the four, the seven, and the invocation of Solomon. These prayers are exceptionally powerful for rejecting those forces. But there are many more in our tradition that we use. 
And you can use it internally and even physically to prepare your home or space for meditation. Or when in a moment of trial in the astral plane you're confronted with negative forces and you have to reject those entities, literally combat them by invoking divinity and asking Christ to expel, to reject those beings. But learning how to use those prayers is, of course, very difficult in the beginning. Many of our students have trouble remembering. It takes a lot of practice to memorize these prayers, but even more difficult is learning how to use them internally in the moment. So this is the battle between light and darkness. And in this card, we see the moon, the crescent moon at the very top third of the card. This moon represents Yasod, sex. We must convert the lunar energies of our sexual organs into the sun of the spirit. This is the science of alchemy. We do so through the science of love, Venus. And even within the tradition of Islam, we find the crescent moon and the star Venus, referring to the hours of Lucifer Venus, when... Prophet Muhammad and many masters would wake up to perform supererogatory prayer. He said often in the oral tradition of Islam, it is best to wake up early and to practice, to perform uh, extra prayers. There's even a verse in the Quran where he states, and the recitation at dawn how great is the recitation at dawn? For it is ever witnessed, literally by the angels and even the demons. They watch the neophyte to see what he or she will do. For truly do you not know that your Lord will raise you to a praiseworthy station? Because if you're working very seriously at that hour, you can have many samadhis, superior states of experience. And if I'm telling you this, it's because this is what I've done in the past and I'm doing now. I've received that help. So we must convert the moon into a sun. And this moon is paralleled by these two dogs. The dog is another symbol of the sexual power, the instinct. We know amongst dogs that they are driven by passion. When they need to procreate, they do. It's an animal behavior. But people don't understand that the dog in ancient symbologies, ancient traditions represents this force in us. This dog is a symbol of duality of that force. That power, that instinct can be controlled and used to take us to the very heights of divinity. Or, that dog can pull us into hell. And we'll talk about the myth of Cerberus, Cerberus the three-headed dog, who is precisely the sexual power that can take us to the very heavens or enslave us. And these two dogs, white and black, represent that duality. We also have the sign of Neptune at the bottom right. This sign has a trident, three points. Neptune relates to the power of the waters, the god of the sea, Poseidon who is a representation of the Holy Spirit amongst the Greeks and the Romans. The three points of his trident represent Keter, Chukmah, Bina, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
We work with the power of Neptune, the waters, in order to conquer ourselves. I believe we likewise have the sign of Scorpio, which we discussed from the zodiac, this bottom left of the card. And lastly, at the end of this lecture, we'll talk about Sadi, the top right Hebrew character, which is in words like Otz Haim, the tree of life or tree of lives, or Otz Hadat Tobeira, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The word Sadi or the letter Sadi, we find in names like Sadik, righteous one. And we'll explain how this relates to the card at the end. But let's talk about some of the principles of this card. So in relation to Arcanum 18, the number 1 plus 8 is 9. 9 is the sephir of Yasod, the tree of life. We know that there are nine layers in hell accounted to by Dante in his Divine Comedy. These are nine inverted sephiroth or spheres of being in which the lost souls degenerate, devolve, progressively, very slowly, with a lot of pain in the interior of the earth, entering more submerged states as those laws of those dimensions, that pressure disintegrates the ego within the person. Unlike Catholicism, hell is not a place of eternal damnation. Instead, hell is a recycling plant. Those souls who do not work on themselves, their own ego, willingly, to extract the seed, the light of their consciousness from the mind, out of compassion, divinity sends them down so that by nature, the ego can be annihilated in a very mechanical but prolonged and painful way. It is, not pain, it is not pleasant to enter the infernal dimensions. But if the soul doesn't do it in order to return to divinity, divinity out of love, the Divine Mother out of compassion, sends them down so that they can be destroyed. So that the soul, once extracted, returns as an elemental back to the forces of evolution, back on the wheel of samsara. We discuss in Arcanum 10. Enters the mineral kingdom. And then through many millions of years and aeons may graduate each department of the kingdom, mineral, plant, animal, until returning to a humanoid state. Well, that's the path of mechanicity. The path of nature. And this path of the revolution of the consciousness is about freeing ourselves from that, from that influence, so that we can enter the nine heavens, which is the tree of life. Nine Sephiroth, Yesod, Hod, Netzach, Tifereth, Geburah, Hesed, Binah, Chokmah, Keter. But you count Malkut, that's ten. Nine heavens, nine hells. These are the nine cellars of occult masonry or the 18,000 universes of the Sufis. So the ninth cellar within masonry responds or relates to the nucleus of our planet Earth and our body. Our body is an Earth with nine layers, symbolically speaking. 
the ninth sephirah, the ninth sphere of Yasad, relates to sexuality. And this is where we find the sepulcher of Hiram Abif amongst the Masons. Hiram Osiris, the divine architect who built the temple of Shalaman, Shalama, the solar man. Hiram Osiris is Christ, who is slain and will be resurrected. This divinity in us was annihilated or assassinated in us by three traitors. The Masons call it Sabal, Stoken, or Taluk, or amongst the Christians, Judas, Pilate, Caiaphas. Judas, the de- demon of the desire, Pilate, the demon of the mind. And Caiaphas, the demon of evil will. We have to descend into the ninth sphere in order to confront ourselves. We talked previously about how in this path, especially in the very beginning, in relation to the mysteries of initiation, we must enter in the internal planes down the nine sephiroth of hell. Enter the nine initiations of minor mysteries, the probationary path, where in a manner of speaking we confront certain ordeals about ourselves. We're shown, if you wish to enter heaven, you first have to descend. You have to face yourself and many experiences about your own mind. And it's interesting that in this struggle between heaven and hell and us, nine plus nine is 18. Is twilight. We learn to conquer ourselves by working in the ninth sphere. The ninth sphere relates to Yasod. It is the ninth sufferer from the top to the bottom of the tree of life. It is sexuality. The supreme test is in a marriage in which, in the moments of sexual union, husband and wife must conserve and control the fire. They must work very diligently never to lose the sacred wine of the alchemists, which is the seminal forces. It's not enough just to conserve those forces either, but to control them and to sublimate them through breath, through prayer, through love. Using the breath and mantras and sacred sounds so that those forces rise from the gonads as energy up the caduceus of mercury to our pineal gland, to our brain. And by meditating daily on the annihilation of the ego, the serpent kundalini rises gradually. And it's like a sword. It is the Hebrew letter Zayin, which is the weapon of the great heroes, the great masters. So the supreme ordeal of twilight is facing our own desires, especially when one is married. And we know that we are all children of sex. We are born through the sexual act. But likewise, spiritually, we must be born again, as we've explained many times. Spiritually, not literally, but not by belief, but by working with the creative energy. We know that the waters in the ninth sphere in Dante's Divine Comedy, in the ninth hell of his experiences, He depicts the lost souls frozen in hell with the water up to their genitals. These are symbols. People read this book, The Divine Comedy, 
as his literature, something made up. And many Catholics do understand the spiritual value of that teaching to their merit, but the real symbology is not understood by them because they don't know Kabbalah, alchemy. In the ninth sphere, when the soul is being disintegrated in the interior of the earth, there are frozen lakes there in which the lost souls are disintegrated in their lunar protoplasmic bodies and the ego is annihilated. But those souls that Dante says were crying and their tears are freezing, which reminds us of the Valley of Tears that is our own planet because those negative forces are pulling Malkut down as we can see on the news. But remember that 9 plus 9 is 18. Nine heavens, nine hells. One nine is positive. The other is negative. One is positive sexual alchemy with the conservation and transmutation of the sexual energy. The other is black sexual magic in which the energy is always expelled. There is balance between these two nines when there is death of the ego. The forces of light and darkness are transformed. The darkness is turned into light with the annihilation of desire. But this card results negatively without purification. This is the arcanum of the secret enemy that Master Moria speaks about in the Dayspring of Youth. We must learn to sublimate the forces of Yasod and fight against lust, especially. So this is the three-headed dog, Cerberus, within the Greek myths. The ancients always depicted the dog as a sacred animal. The dogs always participated in magical works. They are consecrated to the god Mercury, which is the mercurial science of Hermes, the conservation of hermetically sealing our energies. These are allegories of sexual power. And the hierophants of Egypt and Greece always worship the dog. But of course, our anthropologists today are very ignorant, thinking that these people literally worshipped animals. And in a matter of speaking, if we're in North America, many people worship dogs or cats. But those animals represent the sexual energy, the erotic instinct. It's an extraordinary element that can transform us, transform our mind. And if you have a dream about dogs, it's referring to the sexual energy. I believe there's even the proverb or the saying that dog is man's best friend. I remember having many experiences with dogs after doing a lot of energy practice, such as runes, the rune fa, the rune man, the seven vowels, working with energy and mantralizing, sometimes for an hour, two hours or more, and then going to sleep. I remember on one occasion I was riding a sled being pulled by dogs, tons of dogs just running, and they had a kind of wild energy, but it was controlled, referring to the accumulation of the erratic fire and energy that was very powerful. You can have experiences with this animal, which is, of course, a symbol of working with the mercury. We know the dog Cerberus is in the infernal worlds. According to the 
myths. He was a three-headed dog with enormous flat muzzled heads and a neck surrounded by serpents, which again refers to the sexual symbolism of this power, the kundalini. But in the myth, he is trapped in hell. We have to free Cerberus from Pluto, the abyss. We must steal the fire from the devil. Because the instinct is natural. It's a power. Sexual attraction is a normal thing. But when the ego adulterates the energies with lust, it pollutes it. Cerberus in the myth is within the entrance of hell or within the depths. He barks at them when they try to escape, but he's very pleasant when they enter in. It's a symbol of how chastity is very difficult. To leave hell and be chased is very challenging. But to be a fornicator and a devolving person is very simple and easy and pleasant. So the dog and the swan amongst the Egyptians, the Egyptian ibis bird, are representations of the Holy Spirit, the sexual energy. This is the glass of Hermes, the hermetic glass that we must never spill in our life, the wine of alchemy, because no energy should be lost when the couple unites. They must be controlled and raised high, meaning raise those energies up your spine in a very pure way, in an elevated way. So this dog... I believe, was rescued in the myth of Hercules, Heracles, who was a solar hero, a representation of Chokmah, wisdom, Christ. In the Twelve Labors of Hercules, he had to descend into hell in order to free the dog, take that instinct and return him back to the heavens. Of course, it was very easy. For, it was difficult work. Very easy to fail, because as you see in this movement, there are many people who begin these studies and then they leave. Because they see how challenging it is for them to renounce their own mind, their own desires. This dog, though, if we hold tight to the reins, like in my dream, can take you all the way up to the heavens, can pull your sleigh. And Salmai Anvir mentions many times to his disciples there are many people who forget to work with their dog in alchemy. There are people who reach certain heights of development and change, but who may take a pause in their work of alchemy. They may pause for a while in transmutation, and because they don't have energy available, they stagnate. This happened to Samayan Vior and his life, he mentioned in one of his, or a few of his books, how he was instructed eternally, no longer pause in your work with alchemy with your priestess wife, Lithalantes, but learn to continue to work with the fire, the energies of the Sanctum Regnum, the Holy Kingdom. Some masters will take a pause on their work when it's commanded by divinity, but they always are instructed internally to continue. So we must never forget our dog. The three heads of this dog represent the trident, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the three forces of Neptune, which can take us all the way from hell to the absolute. 
And so we must learn to be chaste. Never abandon our work with transmutation, which is why we emphasize to our students here and online that if you are serious about your work, you will transmute every day. Not only just conserve your seed, but sublimate it. Do mantras and prayers, pranayama, interchangeable nostril breathing, and if you're married, work work in alchemy. Work daily to sublimate your energy. Without that energy, you cannot work because a car with no fuel won't drive. But if you have energy available, you can change, do many things, travel very far. That must be coupled with death of the ego because conserving energy but not comprehending and eliminating desire builds ego. Because if you save that energy, it's got to go somewhere. If you use it to feed your anger, the anger becomes much more amplified and terrible. And likewise, we have to sacrifice for humanity the three factors for the revolution of the consciousness. So the ninth sphere is in the interior of the earth, the nucleus. One plus eight is nine. In the interior of our planet earth, within the internal dimensions, we find the sign of the infinite. This is the sign of the eyes of Ra, the solar god. This is the brain, heart, and sex of the genie of the earth, Melchizedek. And represents for us the struggle between brain and sex, sex and brain, mind and sexuality, sexuality and mind, in which the couple must overcome desire, the sensations and longing, or better said, intoxication with fornication, wanting to expel the energy. And so it's always a difficult struggle for beginners especially to learn how to take the current and flow of those forces and return them back up to our mind. No longer let the vital winds flow out, but inward. But with practice, it becomes easy. The worst struggle is always heart against heart within the egos of the couple who have to work on their own emotional states, their own lust. Envy, jealousy, pride, anger. When we conquer our own sexuality, we become the upright pentagram, the perfected human being whose head points towards heaven. If we give in to fornication, we become the fulminated tower, as we explained in the previous Arcanum, Arcanum 16. Every hero in every mythology descends into the ninth sphere in order to work against the mind. The descent is easy. To enter into sexual union is easy. But to return to the light is very difficult. Which is why in the Greek and Roman myths, such as the book of the Aeneid by Virgil, depicts how Aeneas was horrified and terrified of entering into hell when he was commanded by Jupiter or by divinity. But if one is persistent, one will succeed. Well, this is the great drama and tragedy, or better said, it is a tragedy if one fails, but a great crisis every person has to face in this work. We also talk about, in relation to the ninth sphere, about two types of psychology within those dimensions, relating to the inhabitants of those spheres. In Kabbalah, there are Lilith, Nahima, 
the two demons, wives of Adam, Protoplastos, after he fell with Eve. These are symbols of two types of psychology. They represent infrasexuality, inferior sexuality, which is what humanity follows today. The procreation of animals or indulging in lust in order to enjoy the pleasures of the orgasm and being depleted of the bliss of Eden, the energies of divinity. That is an inferior type of sexuality that humanity follows. But there is normal sexuality amongst Gnostic couples who are transmuting daily their energies and forces. And then there is suprasexuality, is the sexuality of angels, of gods. But we'll talk about these two inferior forms of sexuality. I better said the two spheres of Lilith and Nahema in relation to infrasexuality because this is what is most common and what we can see from experience. So in the interior of the earth are many beings and in the internal dimensions the lost souls dwell within the earth, the caves. Just as fish do not see the water that they swim in, so likewise the beings of the inferior dimensions do not see the element they are in. But if we are awakening our consciousness, we can enter those realms in order to see the fate of those beings, those souls. We must learn to descend in our meditations, in our work, to work with the fire and the water. This fire and water is the power of Genesis, which creates worlds, beasts, human beings, and gods. So many people always talk about ascending to the higher dimensions, that humanity is in an evolving arc, in a new age, reaching a utopian future that is guaranteed. But these beliefs do not equate with reality. If we wish to ascend the superior worlds, we first must descend. Because we cannot climb a mountain if we are carrying a bag of stones, the weight of the ego. First, remove the ego. Anger, pride, lust, vanity, laziness, gluttony. All these defects must be removed so that the weight of the soul is freed or the weight is free from the soul so the soul can elevate and go up. But of course, people don't want to change in most cases. The sphere of Lilit is the sphere of abortions. Women who abort their children They take contraceptive pills. People who are enemies of sex. Contraceptives destroy life. They are contrary to conception. And those drugs distort the natural flow and functioning of the sexual energy. It's an abuse of nature. The sphere of Lilith is a sphere of abuse. Incest, pederasty, terrible crimes against nature, homosexuality, 
in which the sexual organs are engaged in acts which are contrary to its original purpose. But of course, in these times, especially in Chicago, people glorify homosexuality and lesbianism, non-binary genderism, or whatever they want to come up with, complicated philosophies, doctrines, which support the devolving forces and the forces of nature which are pulling people down. Nahema is a little different. Not as degenerated, but still negative. It is fornication, adultery, fascination with sex, men and women who like to divorce in order to get married again. This is the duality of the ninth sphere. In our column 18, we have the sphere of Lilith and the sphere of Nahema. These are types of psychology that permeate all of the aspects of the infernal dimensions. And all of us have, to some degree, those elements that we need to understand and annihilate. So in order to be free of that, we work with the 33 chambers of our spine, the 33 vertebra, the 33 degrees of occult masonry, the 33 years in the life of Jesus. We raise the kundalini by meditating on the ego, annihilating it, working in a marriage, Sacrificing for others. The Kundalini rises in accordance with the merits of our heart, our virtues, our soul. This is how we attain the seven degrees of the power of fire, the seven serpents of fire, and later on, the seven serpents of light. Each time we raise the fire within a vertebra of the spine, we have to face great battles against the ego and even the Black Lodge. These battles often occur internally. This is why in the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 12, it states, Now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. This is the inner meaning of jihad. Mujahida, in Arabic, holy war. doesn't mean to kill people not of your faith. It means annihilate your ego. There's a famous story in the Muslim oral tradition where Prophet Muhammad was returning from a battle with his companions after fighting against the Arabians at the time who wanted to kill him and prevent his doctrine from spreading. So he was authorized by the White Lodge to defend himself physically because the Black Lodge was literally waging battles against him and trying to take his life. They call that Jihad al-Asgar, the Lesser Holy War. And even some island Vior mentions in books like The Revolution of Beelzebub, how even Master Moria in the time of Atlantis put Europa and many others to the sword, defending themselves against the spread of black magic in Atlantis in the city of the Seven Golden Doors. We don't condone violence, but self-defense Meaning, in the internal planes, we are confronted by demons. And they are conjuring us and attacking us, so we defend ourselves. Caput mortum, imperativi dominus pavium, et voltum serpentem. And reciting those prayers, like the Conjuration of the Four, the Seven, Invocation of Solomon, to protect us. Protect us from those forces. But in the teachings of Muhammad, which are greatly adulterated today, 
he specified that the greater holy war is much necessary. He said to his companions, do you know what is greater than the lesser holy war? And they said, what? Oh, prophet. He said, war against your desires, yourself. Because if you don't work on yourself, then nothing you do will be a benefit. If we don't work on our own mind, then the Black Lodge won't try to tempt us, but they'll accept us as their brother or sister. Surah 9 of the Quran, Al-Tawbah, the return, is very famous within the Muslim tradition, primarily because on every surah of the Quran begins with Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, in the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful. In the Surah 9, there is no Bismillah. We talked a lot about this in our column 9 previously, but I want to reiterate that Surah 9 is where we battle against the Black Lodge, which is why it doesn't begin with blessings. Bismillah, Irrahman, Irrahim. And Ibn Abbas asked Ali ibn Abi Talib why there is no Bismillah in Surah 9. He says that it begins with the severing of a covenant and a declaration of conflict the opposite of a state of security or blessings. And this is a very strong surah for many people to digest because this is the part in the Quran that talks about killing the unbelievers, which Muslims have used literally to justify war, physically to kill people who are not Muslim. This is very sad because the real war is against the ego. What is an unbeliever in Arabic? Kafirin. Kafir, plural kafirin. You hear the word kaf in Arabic there. The Hebrew kaf means crown, which you get words like keter, the crown of glory. But a cave is where the infidels dwell in the interior of the earth, the caves of the infernal spheres of the inverted sephiroth of the tree of life, klipot. The demons dwell within the interior of the earth, within the caves. Kafirin. Kaf in Arabic means cave. There's a surah in the Quran called Al-Kaf, the cave, which talks about these principles. But the unbelievers who dwell in the caves are our own egos. Within the 49 dwellings and levels of our own subconsciousness, unconsciousness, infraconsciousness. Even in the myth of Ali Baba and the 40 thieves, he goes into a cave in order to find treasure. That treasure is the sexual energy, Cerberus, that you got to extract from the caves and fight off the thieves or the ego. 40 is Mem in Hebrew or Mim in Arabic, the creative energies. Jesus fasted 40 days in the wilderness, 40 nights. Moses and his people traveled for 40 years in the desert before finding the promised land. Because the work with the waters of Mam is how we fight against the infidels, our own lust, our own desires. So, the black magicians always exert very strong efforts to pull us from the path. And in his book, the Divine Science, Logos Mantra Theurgy by Samayan Vior. He gives many examples of how the demons 
try to pull students from the path. I won't go through all the details of that chapter, Light and Darkness, and many others that explain these dynamics, but you can study that on your own. But he says the primary method by which demons pull students is the intellect, is with theories, with beliefs. People are taught that fornication is acceptable. They use the intellect to justify desire. And many of the temples of black magic have very venerable appearances filled with twilight, fatal light, and masters that speak of love and beauty and harmony and religion and use many terms that we use also in this teaching, which of course are very confusing for people because they don't understand or discriminate the difference between white and black, positive, negative. So many people, when they have those experiences in the astral plane, as they're beginning these studies, enter these temples of sorcery and become very confused because they see these people have very venerable appearances, robes, beautiful syllogisms, signs, handshakes, where brotherhood is spoken about very abundantly. But they always advise the student to expel the sexual energy. And that is the key that Samayan Vero gives for us, for us to understand that this is the defining characteristic of a demon. Demons do not think they are evil. They feel that they are very awake and that they are very good people. But they always expel the energies. They don't work with the sexual, creative, Christic seed. They are in the shells of Klipot. So Samayan Vero mentions that Our culture today, in America especially, is pulling many people into black magic. Therefore, we should avoid watching films that are very pornographic or lustful, violent. He even talks about not going to movie theaters. But uh, the reason is, is that he says those places are very filled with larvae, astral parasites, which people created by watching these films and investing their mental energy in, in those pictures, which are pornographic and creating all sorts of degenerative fluids and entities with their mind that coagulate collectively in those spheres. Salman Vera mentioned how he used to attend movie theaters until he was confronted by a master of the White Lodge, where he was watching a film and they were engaged in a very lustful scene. And then in the mental plane, he was taken that night and he had to confront that entity that he created in his mind in the mental plane, which he conquered, but then he was warned. You know, you shouldn't go to these places because we can take your sword, your kundalini, we can just snap it, cut you off because those places are very unhealthy, spiritually speaking. Many of those who begin... Few are those who reach the end. The ninth sphere is positive and negative. In the superior astral dimension in the interior of the earth, we find the temple of Melchizedek. In the infernal ninth sphere, we find the devolving lost souls who are disintegrating. The Black Lodge does not consider themselves evil. They feel and believe that entering the interior of the earth to devolve is good. They know it and they welcome it. 
They know that they're going to be disintegrated and eventually they will return back as an elemental to the mineral, plant, animal kingdoms. And people can follow what they like. We don't force anything on anyone. We respect free will. Which is why Prophet Muhammad in a very short surah of the Quran, Al-Kafirin, the unbelievers, stated, Unto you your religion, and unto me my religion. I do not follow what you follow, and you do not follow what I follow. You follow what you follow, and I follow on my own. This is a very short surah, but very beautiful. It's teaching about the struggles he had to face with many of the Arabs of his time. Because in the Middle East, it was very replete with demons, even in the times of Prophet Muhammad, but now even more so, unfortunately, which is why the Middle East today is such a mess. This Arcanum 18 is all about witchcraft. The witchcraft of Thessaly, Potions, sorcerers, love spells, erotic magic ceremonies, temptations. And as I said, the greatest potion the black magicians use is the intellect. They appear very venerable and pleasing and pleasant, but always advise the student to expel the sexual force. I remember in the astral, actually the mental plane, many years ago, I remember one demon came to me as I was projecting in the mental plane, and he showed me a sign which intuitively I interpreted and understood. It looked like a bunch of signs all pointing in many directions, which he was convinced was a symbol showing me that I'm going the wrong way. And all these arrows were moving in, or in different directions, but I intuitively knew that he wanted me to awaken down there in, in Klipot, which is convoluted and distorted and inverted. But... I intuitively knew the real meaning when he showed me that. And he was being friendly with me and very respectful, but he was using my intellect or trying to convince me that I was wrong. And those are the worst confrontations we can face, the most dangerous. In the astral plane, we face spiritual combat, conjurations, emotional force. But in the mind, it's discussions and polemics and, and mind, intellect. People are fascinated with novelties. People who've been in these studies for a long time, who have taught many people, have always seen that the greatest weapon the Black Lodge uses is the intellect. There is a new theory, a new belief system, a new mantra, a new doctrine or school, and a new venerable teacher with a big beard or, or a yogi suit or tunic or toga. And people get very fascinated with appearances. It's unfortunate, but this is just the reality of our humanity. People fascinated with appearances. 18 is also 6 plus 6 plus 6. The B666. Indecision within the mind, the heart, and sex. That is the animal ego. Animal desire. So in the ninth sphere is also initiation. We achieve initiation by conquering all of this in ourselves. We do this by understanding the three forms of Tantra because the ninth sphere is also understood by studying the three forms of alchemy. White, gray, black. White al alchemy, white sexual magic, the sexual energy is never expelled. It is transmuted. Gray Tantra, gray sexual alchemy, 
The couple sometimes conserves, sometimes expels. But this always leads to black sexual magic, which is always the expulsion of the sexual energy, combined with certain concentration exercises and prayers of a demonic type, which invoke demons. And so that fortifies the I, the animal ego. These are the three forms of tantrism. Tantra means continuum. And in Buddhism refers to sexual magic. Tantra in Sanskrit means continuum. In white sexual alchemy, tantrism, the continuum of the sexual glands form the holy eight in the spine. The sign of the infinite, the sign of the ninth sphere. Brain, heart, and sex are equilibrated, balanced. But when there is expulsion of the sexual force, the circuitry of God is cut short. It is fried. The wires become burnt. And the soul precipitates itself downward, developing the kundabhava organ. So remember that there were two wives of Adam after Eve. Lilith, Nahema. But in order to work and escape the 18th Arcanum, we study the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha, of the alchemists. Buddha simply means awakened one. And the Four Noble Truths are the teachings of the solar dragon, the Christ which Salman Vior speaks very abundantly in his book, The Korean Message, which we'll quote in brief. So what is a Buddha? We say specifically as a master of the fourth initiation of major mysteries, which is uh, the sphere of Netzach. So Malkut, Yesod, Hod, Netzach are the lower four sephiroth that retrieve life. The physical body, the vital body, the astral body, the mental body. In order to overcome Arcanum 18, twilight, to conquer the mind, Netzach, is to be victorious, a Buddha. Netzach even has the Hebrew letter Tzadi in the middle, which we'll talk about in brief towards the end. But a Buddha is a master who has raised the four serpents of fire within their lower four bodies. To a degree, they have conquered twilight. But of course, there are degrees and degrees by which we achieve that. A Buddha is in the process of preparing for the incarnation of Christ through the fifth initiation of major mysteries, the Venusic initiation. So Samayan VR explains the Four Noble Truths that can help us to understand the path that leads out of twilight. There are four noble truths that have the power to annihilate the prince of this world. First truth, to have absolute consciousness of pain and bitterness. Second truth, pain is the child of fornication, and whosoever spills the semen reaches the orgasm is a fornicator. This is a tremendous truth. The third truth, we have an eye that must be decapitated and dissolved in order to incarnate the word, the Christ. Fourth truth, we can only decapitate and dissolve the prince of this world, the I, with the Arcanum AZF, Agua Sufre Fuego, 
fire, or water, fire, spirit. E A O, the supreme mantras of alchemy. Conventionally, the Four Noble Truths are, in life there is suffering, suffering has causes, there exists the cessation of the causes of suffering, and then there is a path out. But Salman and Vior is explaining a more profound explanation of those four truths. Whosoever decapitates the eye can incarnate the immolated lamb, Christ. We need to incarnate the word, the Christ, in order to be saved from the great cataclysm that will occur in these times the end. To comprehend the four truths is urgent. Whosoever walks on the Eightfold Path is converted into a dragon of the four truths. So the Eightfold Path of Buddha refers to things like right livelihood, right view, right mindfulness, right effort. And this is very beautifully explained within the Buddhist sutras, the tantras, the teachings of great Buddhist masters. The Eightfold Path in esotericism is more profound and relates to the spinal column, the sphere of the infinite in which the powers of Yasod rise. Ida, Pigala, Vav, and Zain, the two serpents that rise up the spine. When we raise the Kundalini up and achieve initiation, we become a dragon of the four truths, especially if we reach the fourth initiation of major mysteries and become a Buddha, a victorious one, one who has conquered their mind. Netzach means victory. A Buddha is one who has conquered their intellect. But, of course, there are levels and levels of development which are higher. But this is a very profound level to achieve. Every dragon of the four truths is a Buddha. Listen to me, O Buddhas. You need to incarnate the Christ. The Buddhas can incarnate the Christ only if they renounce nirvana for the love of this humanity and also by working with intensity in the flaming forge of Vulcan, sex. This is how we achieve resurrection. This is how we conquer ourselves. This is how we overcome twilight, annihilate the ego, become a Buddha, an enlightened one. We always explain the Psalms in our lectures. Psalm 119, verses 137 to 144, all begin with the Hebrew letter Tzadi. O Jahava, you are righteous and your judgments right. You have enjoined your testimonies as exceedingly righteous and faithful. My zeal has eaten me up, for my enemies have forgotten your word. So it refers to the struggle between white magic and black magic. We are invoking God and really working on ourselves, and we have to face temptation. We've enjoyed the testimonies of divinity, meaning we have experiences in meditation and out of the body, in which God comes to us and we see for ourselves what divinity is. And my zeal has eaten me up, meaning we love God so much that we have to face many battles in the internal planes because they do not know the word. Your word is pure and your servant loves it. I am small and despised. I do not forget your precepts. I believe in Igneous Rose, Samael Vior mentions a chapter about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, the Baalim, 
the sorcerers. Out of one prophet in the Middle East, there were many more infidels. I don't remember the exact number, I believe. Might have been 350 or so prophets of Baal. There were many prophets of the Black Lodge who fought against Elijah and many other prophets and made them feel small and despised, hated, confronted. But I do not forget your precepts. No matter how difficult those battles, we don't forget God. Because the being is very mighty. And every one of us must face these ordeals patiently. Your righteousness is an eternal righteousness and your law is truth. Distress and anguish have found me. Your commands are my delight. The righteousness of your testimonies are everlasting. Make me know and I will live. So the Hebrew letter Tzadi is the letter of righteousness. It's dual. Because in order to overcome or become a saint, one must face temptation. Great ordeals. Struggles in which one feels that one is going to fail with certainty. But one must be persistent. Sadi has two forms. Initial and sofit. First and final. At the end of words, you have an elongated trunk on the left here. This is the final sofit. Sadi sofit. We find the Hebrew letter Tsadi in names like Tsadik, righteous one, Tsadikiel, the righteous of righteousness of El. By Zachariel and Sadkiel Amalek, be obedient unto Elva, son of Gabriel, from the conjuration of the seven. Tsadi means righteous, but El means God, the righteous God. By Zachariel, the angel of Jupiter, and the righteous king Malek. Malakim, be obedient unto Allah. So who are the righteous ones? These are those people who bear the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the path of the crucifix on their shoulder. The tree of knowledge is the cross. It is the wood that we bear on our shoulders, the symbol of a holy alchemy of a matrimony, which takes us to the Golgotha of the Father, which is the path of supreme suffering and sacrifice, but redemption. The vertical beam is the phallus. The horizontal beam is the uterus. So what is Golgotha? It means place of the skull. Jesus carried his cross up the mountain to the place of the skull, meaning raising the power of Yasod to his brain. And of course, it's a very painful process because we have a lot of ego, a lot of suffering involved. So Tzadi represents precisely the tree of knowledge of good and evil. As we stated, Otz Chaim is the tree of lives. Otz Hadat Tobeira is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Otz, or tree, is Ayin Tzadi. Ayin is the letter relating to the eyes, sight, spiritual vision. And Tzadi is the cross. So it is the power of Dat, because even Dat begins with Dalet, is the middle with Ayin. And ends in Tav. 
The doorway that leads through perception to the seal of God is what da'at means. Gnosis. But sadi is the cross, which we bear by learning to meditate. We work with ayin, we awaken our perception through meditation. But then through the work of that sexual energy, we raise the cross from sex to the mind. Sadi is mentioned in the Zohar. The greatest work of Kabbalah our humanity has known. In the creation myth of the Bible, the Zoharists state that Sadi and many of the other letters of the Kabbalah approached Yorchava to ask to create the world to begin the book of Bereshit. Of course, Beth begins the Bible and Beth receives that blessing, but all the letters of the Torah, the Tarot, the 22 Arcana, approached divinity and asked to create the world. The letter Tzadi entered. She said to him, Master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me, for Tzadikim, the righteous, are sealed by me, and you who are called Tzadik, righteous, are signified by me. As it is written, for Yod Chava is Tzadik, loving righteousness, Psalms chapter 11, verse 7. It is fitting to create the world by me. He replied, Tsari, you are Tsarik, but you should remain hidden, not so revealed, so as not to provide the world a pretext. So what does it mean to not present the world a pretext? Don't give humanity a reason to persecute you by being a righteous one. Some people in this movement who are working in initiation become sadikim, meaning they create solar bodies, they become righteous people. But then they go around bragging about their righteousness to humanity. I am a righteous person. I am in the master's so-and-so. I am, I am a great initiate. Join my group and you will be saved. Don't give the world a pretext to judge you, to condemn you, because sadi, while it makes one righteous, can also be dualistic. Pride is before the fall. Many people in our movement become too vain, mystically speaking. They're filled with mystical pride. So, how is it that one does not provide the world a pretext? How so? She is noon, the Hebrew letter of the Arcanum of Temperance. Noon is the sexual energy, the sperm or the ovum. And Yod comes from the name Yod Chava. If you look at the Hebrew letter Tzadi, it literally looks like a noon with a transposed Yod. Noon on an angle here, and Yod above. You also can see the Hebrew letter Zayin and Vav involved. So why is Tzadik the tree of life? It has Vav and Zayin in it. Man and woman, male, female. Vav is the man, Zayin is the woman. Or, Od and Od, male, female, Adam, Eve. Ida, Pingala, in the spine. The two energetic serpent currents that rise from sex to the brain are Vav and Zayin, which you find in Tzari. Calligraphy speaking, are hidden within the calligraphy here. So, Nun and Yod are in this letter, 
Nun is the seed, and Yod is also the seed. So Yod is from the name of the Holy Covenant, comes from and rides on her, is united with her. This is the mystery. When the Blessed Holy One created Adam, he created him with two faces. So each Yod is like a face. And both Yods face one direction, but they're actually not facing each other. That can refer to the duality of Lilith and Nahema, inversion, the infrasexuals, but also between the solar and the lunar forces that are battling each other. Good and evil, light and darkness. And the Zohar gives some other verses here too about how this Yod is not facing the opposite way or facing downward or facing upward, but facing opposite because... Man and woman are opposites. Vav Zayin, Adam Eve. The opposites work together to work with the cross, which is Tzadi, the cross of the Tzadikim. So, Tzadi was created with two faces, meaning that force of righteousness can be very heavenly or it could be demonic. So they were not turned face to face like this, two yods facing each other. It looked upward like it did not look upward like this, or it looked upward like this, facing up. It looked downward like this. And if you look at some of the calligraphy of the word sari, the yod can be looked facing different directions, meaning the face is not uniform, not integral, not integrated. And that's precisely the nature of the ego. There's no integration there, but the ego has many faces and is dualistic and negative and the faith, you know, people don't see eye to eye because of the ego, the mind. The Blessed Holy One said to her, Turn back, for I intend to split you and transfigure you face to face, but you will arise elsewhere. She left his presence and departed, said Jehovah. Turn back from the lunar path, for I intend to split you and transfigure you face to face. Because when husband and wife are working together, they are transfigured. The fire illuminates them. And they will arise elsewhere, meaning only by through the death of the ego can they fully achieve perfection. So we develop the Hebrew letter tsarik, tsari, by overcoming twilight. We develop the image of God by working with tsari, because the Hebrew word for image is tsalem. Tsari, lamed, mem, or final mem. So what does it mean to develop the image of God, to be an Adam Christ? People in these times think they are made into the image of God. But what they have is an ego. And God did not create the ego. We did. So how do we work with the image of God? By working with our tsalam. The image of God is contained within our sexual seed. Because tsari is nun, yod. Nun, yod, vav, zayin. All those letters combined. Man and woman working with their seed. As it says in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 17. For therein is the righteousness, the tsalam of God, revealed from faith to faith, from Adam to Eve between husband and wife, because that's how they generate true faith, by working with the power of the solar energies. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
So we always have to battle against twilight. This is how we prove ourselves. And the word sadi relates to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 2. This duality of light and darkness. So we know from the book of Genesis, it is a work of Kabbalah and alchemy, which have to be interpreted through the Hebrew letters and the Zohar. We find the verse, and the earth was formless and void, tohu ve-bohu, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. In this image we see Keter creating the world, the universe. Notice his fingers are spread. This is an image from William Blake, who was a great master of Kabbalah. His fingers formed Sadi. He is a righteous one. He was the one who produces the righteousness of the soul. So as I explained previously, our own internal earth is formless and void, and darkness is on the face of our psychology. In the beginning, we want to work on this path. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. What is that earth? It is what we stand on, our foundation. If when we sit to meditate, we see nothing, if we're clouded, if we are obscured, it's because we have no ground. Our psychology has no continuity or integrity. Our concentration wavers, fluctuates. It's never perfected or pointed at one thing. Because of the ego, we are formless. The mind is a chaos. Formless and void. And there is darkness, ignorance upon the face of our own psychological deep. So the way that we overcome the formlessness of the mind and the void of our own consciousness is by developing fire and light. And in the following verse, this is, and, let, and the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light. So as I said, Sadi is the cross. It even looks like a cross with two beams crossing each other. It reminds us of Ayin as well. Ayin has a very similar structure to Sadi which is why they fall so closely together in the sequence of Arcana. So what does it mean to work with the cross? It is to work with Christ. Yeshua, son of Nun. In the Bible, the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, reminds us of Yeshua, which is Christ. Even some island viewers stated that the Old Testament figure of Joshua was Jesus the reincarnation of Christ, who is preparing to perform his mission in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Yahshua, son of Nun. We are the son or children of the sperm or ovum, the two yods on the top of Tzadi. When we carry Nun, the seminal seed, and yod up the spine or vav, we create Zayin, the sword of the Kundalini. This is how we develop fire and light, by extracting the fire from the darkness. Twilight. We do this by conquering the secret enemy, Judas, Pilate, Caiaphas, meditating on the death of desire, hatred, pride, vanity, etc. This is the tree of knowledge upon which we are crucified, upon which we crucify the mind. It's interesting that even the Hebrew word yesod begins with yod, it has samek in the middle, vav, dalet. We explain that 
Samek is the serpent, the 15th letter of the Hebrew Kabbalah, the serpentine power of Kundalini or Kundabuffer, depending on how we use that force. Samek can rise up the tree of knowledge of good and evil if we don't eat the forbidden fruit, don't give in to desire. This is how we become wizards of Otz, wizards of Oz, wizards of the tree, the magician. But to get there, you've got to follow the yellow brick road, your spinal column. That is how you become a magician. So the Wizard of Oz is a very beautiful teaching. I had an experience about these principles many years ago, which I'll relate. I woke up in the astral plane, and I was summoned by my inner being. He appeared to me in the form of the Tree of Life. And I looked at the Sephiroth and I counted 18. So he was showing me that there's a duality there between heaven and hell. And he was showing me the struggle with my own mind. And he said to me in very simple words, his voice emanated from the tree of life, much in the same way that Moses talked to the burning bush. He says, you must become Benedictine. And I didn't know, at first, even though I've studied literature and English language for a long time, I didn't really know the meaning, full meaning of that word yet. I looked it up when I got home, or when I woke up. It means to be purified, to be blessed. You wish to become holy, a tzaddik, you must annihilate the ego and face the infidels. So he was warning me, and he, this was my own wizard of Uts, the wizard of my own tree of life and tree of knowledge. One plus eight relates to the magician, Arcanum 1, and justice, Arcanum 8. Together they make the ninth sphere, Yasod. So he, Salman Vyar explains in Teron Kamla that in order to become a magician, we have to follow four precepts to know how to suffer, to know how to be silent, to know how to abstain, and to know how to die. We do it by working patiently, with our spinal column and the Eightfold Path of the Buddha. The Magician, Arcanum 1, the Eightfold Path of Arcanum 8 is 18. That's how you overcome twilight. Even the word Netzach, as I said before, has Tsari in the middle. Noon, Tsari, Chet. Victory. It is the mind that we have to battle against twilight. That is where we face the worst demons. As I explained, you conquer your mind, you become a Buddha, a righteous one. So the Hebrew letter Tzadi is the cross of the righteous. Crucifixion occurred in the New Testament between the 6th and the ninth hour. 6 plus 9 is 15. Passion, the devil, the work with the serpent, Samek. So when we annihilate the ego and become righteous beings, Tzadikim, we can become Sabaot. So Sabaoth is the Lord of Hosts. Jehovah Sabaoth begins with Tzadi. Those are the, all the angels who have fully perfected the tree of knowledge in themselves. So I'd like to relate to you a teaching from the Zohar now, which explains this whole concept of Tzadi in relation to the book of Genesis. The earth was formless and void, 
or chaos and void. Tohu vebohu. From Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Was precisely previously. The earth was formless and void before we worked in alchemy, where we give form to the solar bodies, the earth and the heavens. Shamaim. What does it mean to be formless and void? It means to not have solar bodies, to be empty of real spiritual depth and chaos to be filled with ego. Snow and water. Through the potency of snow and water emerged slime. Blazing fire struck it. Refuse came to be. And tohu, chaos, was produced. Abode of slime and nest of refuse. So what, does it mean? what is snow, esoterically speaking? It means chastity. The cold purity of the spirit the sexual purified energies. When mixed with the water of our own degenerated sexuality at this point, it becomes slime. Literally, the slime is the sexual matter, whether from man or woman, the sexual fluids. When the couple unites, blazing fire strikes it. The fires become engaged, but if the couple is filled with lust, refuse came to be. They create chaos in their minds through desire. That is the nest of refuse, of degeneration. Ve, vohu, and void. Sifting, sifted from refuse, settling upon it. So the mind is a void. It is filled with emptiness or darkness. Hoshek. Which is the mystery of blazing fire. That darkness covers tohu over the refuse and thereby it is empowered. So what is that dark fire? What is that twilight? It is darkness, but it is fire. The sexual energy is dualistic. It is in darkness, the darkness of our body, but it is the fire that can illuminate us. But that energy becomes perverted and degenerated through fornication. And that is how the refuse, the ego, the slime of the mind is fortified, empowered. The Ruach Elohim and a wind of God Roch Kucha, Holy Spirit, emerging from the living God, hovering over the face of the waters. So the Ruach Elohim hovering over the face of the waters is our own spirit. And when the couple is united, they're controlling their breath and their breathing through prayer and mantra. That is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of the sexual union and transmuting the waters into wine. Transmuting the fire or the dark fire into light, twilight into development. Once this wind blew, one fine film clarified from that refuse, like filthy froth flying off, clarified, refined again and again, till that filth is left lacking any filth at all. What's interesting is that this filth is the ego. Little by little, the couple gains more chastity. In the beginning, they have to fight against a lot of desire. But by cooperating and working again and again and meditating on the death of lust, the sacrament of union becomes pure. The refuse is purified through the breathing, aleph, the breath, the power of keter. As Samael and Vior stated in the lecture Matrimony, Divorce, and Tantrism, bake and rebake and rebake your clay and your water again so that when your clay returns to the clay and your water evaporates, only your amphora of salvation remains. In other words, only your resplendent and sparkling soul remains in the hands of your inner God. So what is that clay? 
is the mind. But there are hidden archetypes there that are very beautiful. We have to craft the perfect chalice of God, which is the solar bodies, so that we can receive the wine of knowledge. You cannot drink old wine and new wineskins. You have to create new wineskins, a new chalice to receive that wisdom. You create it through alchemy, the solar bodies. So the couple has to work daily, if that is their temperament, in alchemy, to purify the mind. So was tohu, formlessness, clarified and refined, from it emerging a great mighty wind, splitting mountains and shattering rocks. This is from the book of Kings, chapter 19, verse 11, which is the one seen by Elijah. So there's another verse from the Old Testament in which Elijah had a vision. I'll relate to that to you from the book of Kings, chapter 19, verses 11 through 12, which relate to these concepts of the formlessness and voidness in the mind in the Hebrew letter Tzadi. Go out and stand on the mountain before Jehovah. Behold, Jehovah was passing by, a great mighty wind splitting mountains and shattering rocks before Jehovah. Jehovah was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. Jehovah was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, fire. Jehovah was not in the fire. After the fire, the sound of sheer silence. This is an alchemical teaching. What is that wind that Elijah sees? He's symbolizing alchemy, a marriage, union. The couple is united sexually, filled with love. They're transmuting the waters through their breath. A great wind, the Ruach Elohim. Because when you pray with mantras and the sexual act, you purify the mind and annihilate the ego if you fully comprehended a certain defect. So this wind shatters mountains and shatters rocks. The rock of Yasod, so that the waters of life split and enter and flow. So there is transmutation, but Jehovah is not in the wind, not in the breath, entirely. And then there's an earthquake, but Jehovah is not in the earthquake. What does it mean to be in an earthquake? Obviously when a couple is united, the couple trembles with love with ecstasy. There is, the body quakes with love, with divine union, with beauty, with love. But Jehovah is not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, fire. The sexual fire. The sexual energies. But Jehovah is not in the fire. But after the fire, after transmuting that energy, one goes deeper in meditation and the sexual act, even in samadhi, and achieves sheer silence. That is the voice of the silence, the being, who manifests in all the elements, the breath, the fire, the earth. But if you go really deep and profoundly in yourself, you will see that divinity is very high, and, but manifests in different ways. Profound levels and levels and levels of attainment. So this is the mystery of tohu bohu, formlessness and voidness. So Bohu was clarified and refined. Meaning, the darkness, the voidness of the mind is clarified, is purified, refined with meditation from it emerging an earthquake, as is written, after the wind, an earthquake. Darkness of the mind is clarified, embracing fire within its mystery, as it is written, after the earthquake, fire. 
Wind clarified and embraced in its mystery was the sound of sheer silence. So when the couple is kissing, obviously their breaths, their speech becomes impassioned, inflamed. And they tremble with ecstasy. The darkness is clarified through the sexual union in which the fire is generated when the couple sexually unites. And then after the earthquake, the trembling of divine union, the fire, and then they attain the sound of sheer silence, meditation, profound ecstasy, tantra. Tohu, a colorless, formless realm, not embraced by the mystery of form. So what is this colorless, formless realm? The mind is formless and void. In the beginning, we look at our mind, we see that there's all this chaos, churning, thoughts, memories, daydreams, passions, worries, anxieties, fears, which have no grounding. Now within form, as one contemplates it, no form at all. Everything has a garment in which to be clothed except for this. Though appearing upon it, it does not exist at all, never did. This is why in profound Buddhist meditation, Gnostic meditation, we go into the mind and see that it is groundless, it is empty, formless. But something profound and alchemical is related here too, with bohu. This has shape and form. The void has shape and form. Stones sunk within the shell of tohu, formlessness, emerging from that shell in which they are sunk, conveying benefit to the world. So anytime there's a reference to stone as a, the power of yasod, the sexual energy, which is sunk within the shell of tohu. So within the formlessness of your mind, within the shells of all the egos, is the stone of yasod, the seed that you have to extract. So these shells are sunk within the mud of the abyss, but have to be pulled out. When they are, they bring benefit to the world. Through the form of a garment, they convey benefit from above to below, ascending from below to above. So how do you create the garments of the soul, the solar bodies? By taking the Son of Man, the energies of Christ, which come from above, they send from above to below, and then through transmutation, raise it from below to above. There's a statement in the New Testament when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, and no one can ascend up to heaven but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And just as Moses raised the serpent upon the staff in the wilderness, Tzadi, the tree of knowledge. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. Kundalini, fire, serpents of light as well. So they are hollow and moist, these stones, suspended in the air, sometimes suspended in the air, sometimes concealed on a cloudy day, generating water from the abyss to nourish tohu. So what does it mean that these stones are suspended in the air? When you're working in transmutation, you're raising the stone up your spine, symbolically speaking. To work with your stones is literally to work with the testicles or the ovaries, to transmute those forces. Sometimes that energy is concealed on a cloudy day. Meaning you look in the astral plane, you ask for help, they show you the atmosphere. If it's a cloudy sky, it means there's obscuration in the mind. If it's clear, it means there is ascension. So these stones generate water from the abyss to nourish tohu. Formlessness the darkness of the mind. So those waters can nourish our ego or they can nourish our soul if we know how to steal the fire from the devil. For then frivolity and folly prevail as tohu spreads throughout the world. When people worship the ego and the formlessness of the mind, lacking any genuine spiritual depth, 
frivolity and folly prevail. Darkness is a black fire, or we could say twilight. The sexual energy is darkness in the beginning. It's black, but becomes purified when we work in a marriage. Potent in color, red fire, potent in appearance. Green fire, potent in shape. White fire, embracing all. Samal Enviar explains that this fire is to be purified. First it's black, then it's white, then it's gold. The three magi who visited the birth of Jesus. But also you have green fire, which is a reference to the spirit. If you read a book called Treaties of Sexual Alchemy by Samal Enviar, which Glorian Publishing has available as an e-book. So the fire must be purified. We must overcome twilight, the darkness. The most powerful fire empowers tohu because that energy can empower our ego or our soul. Darkness is fire, but not dark fire until it empowers tohu. This is the mystery of his eyes were too dim to see and he called Esau from the chapter of Book of Genesis, chapter 27, verse 1. So what does it mean that his eyes were too dim to see? This is a reference to Isaac speaking to Jacob and the myth of Esau. So Abraham had Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn of Isaac, had the birthright of receiving all the benefits from Isaac. But Jacob was jealous and wanted to receive the blessings from his father and therefore wore furs on his arms and his body in order to imitate Esau. So his father, who was blind, too dim to see, would feel the furs on his body and think that he was Esau and then bless him, which he did. But Esau is a reference to the ego, the animal desire, which is hairy, the symbol of uh, animality. But Jacob is Tifereth, the human soul. Isaac is the Geburah, the divine soul, who gives blessings to Tifereth, the human soul. What does it mean that his eyes were too dim to see? He called Esau. In the beginning, our spiritual sight is very dim. We don't see things clearly. The earth is formless and void, and darkness is on the face of the deep. And we need to see with developing our spiritual sight by working with the tree of knowledge. Otz, Hadat, Tobvera. Darkness, face of evil, for he greeted evil with a friendly face. These are the two yods of Tzadi, two faces. Because from Tzadi can emerge light or darkness. Then it is called darkness, for it settles upon it, empowering it. This is the mystery of darkness over the face of the abyss. Ruach wind is a voice hovering over bohu, voidness, empowering, conducting it with whatever it is needed. This is the mystery of the voice of Jehovah is upon the waters. From Psalms chapter 29, verse 3. And similarly, the wind of God hovering over the face of the waters. Because with mantras and prayer and breathing, we control the energy. Stones sunk in the abyss from which water issues. So it is called face, face of the abyss. So the water issues from the stone of Yasod, but it is in the abyss because we are filled with desire. But if you use the wind, you can elevate the stone so those stones hover and rise up, symbolically speaking, to your mind, to your heart. The power of your stones, the ovaries or testicles, 
The wind conducts and empowers that face, face of the waters, each one receiving what it needs. So two faces. Face, face of the abyss. Two yods, tzari. You overcome twilight by working with tzari, the tree of knowledge. And this is how we transform ourselves. Finally, tohu, upon it rests the name shaddai. El shaddai, the power of yasod. Shaddai el chai is the almighty living God, the name of God and yasod on the tree of life. So that is a sexual energy. The almighty living God is how we create, spiritually speaking. That is how we work with formlessness. You give form to your soul by working with El Shaddai, the power of the Holy Spirit. Bohu, voidness. Upon it rests the name Sabaot, hosts. So what is another name for Sabaot, army of the voice? All the angels and Elohim that achieve self-realization and resurrection and ascension. They are now children of the void. They're entering the absolute. That's one level of meaning. We become angels by working and overcoming the voidness of our mind. Darkness upon it rests the name Elohim. And we explained many times previously that darkness relates to the left pillar of the tree of life. The left pillar relates to Elohim. And Binah is the name Jehovah Elohim. And Gibrah is the name Elohim Gibur. And the name Hod is Elohim Sabaot, sacred names of God in those spheres. El is God. Eloah is goddess. Yod Mem is masculine plural. Elohim is man and woman united sexually. You overcome darkness in a matrimony. That's why darkness upon it rests the name Elohim. Let there be light, said Elohim. And there was light. Male, female, creating, sexually. Wind upon it rests the name Jehovah. A great mighty wind splitting mountains and rocks. Jehovah was not in the wind. From the chapter 19 of the first book of Kings, verse 11. This name was not in it. What is God, we ask? Where is God when we are practicing alchemy? Is a presence. As Jesus said, The Spirit of God goeth where it listeth, but you know not the direction or the sound of where it cometh from. So this name was not in it. For Shaddai controls the wind through the mystery of Tohu. Because when you're controlling your breath, you're working with El Shaddai. After the wind, an earthquake, and Jehovah was not in the earthquake. For the name Sabaot controls it, the mystery of Bohu. The power of the army of the voice, the logos, the divine angels, created the mystery of the formlessness within divine sexual union. So Bohu is called earthquake, for it does not exist without quaking. After the earthquake, fire. Jehovah was not in the fire, for the name Elohim controls it from the side of darkness. After the fire, the sound of sheer silence. Here is found the name Jehovah So again, the earthquake is when couples are united and they feel inspired by love. They quake with longing and spiritual desire, we can say, with love. But even as the couple is united, they have to remember God, which is the voice of the silence, their inner spirit. God is not in the fire. 
is in the pleasant sensations of sexual union, nor is it in the quaking of the couple, nor in the wind, the mantras, the breath. But God is beyond all that and behind it and governs all if the couple is concentrated in themselves when they're working with the formlessness of their mind and the void. Here are four sections constituting well-known sections of the limbs of the body, numbering four. Yot-Heh-Vah-Heh, man-woman, phallus-uterus. Numbering twelve because Jehovah is mentioned three times. Arcanum twelve is the apostolate, the arcanum of sexual alchemy. Here is the engraved name of twelve letters transmitted to Elijah in the cave. So Elijah refers to Eliyahu. El Yod Hevao E A O, the supreme mantras of sexual magic. When the couple's working with their tree of knowledge, their tsari, they become righteous ones, tsari kim. And in that way, they progress. They create light, and no longer is the earth formless and void, but there is light within the couple. So to conclude, Salman Vera mentions that we defeat Satan, the ego, within sex, within holy union, and through meditation. The eyes are the window of the soul. We must not look at others with lustful desire. This is temptation and adultery. And we always must defend ourselves with the conjurations of the four and the seven. Do you have any questions? Yes. I would say for beginners it's best it's always best if the individuals learn to transmute individually first. This has been the initial trend of uh, practitioners in this science for many millennia. They can when they're ready but beginners, uh, I would say beginners should when the couple uh, works in alchemy they should basically prepare and work with their own rhythm in the beginning. I, I just mean, like, you were talking about the recitation of God at 4 a.m., that that's the hour of Lucifer Venus, right? Right. So if there's a beginner who hasn't yet, you know, fully mastered their energies, and then they're doing these practices, not alchemy, but just practices at 4 a.m., right. could it be dangerous for them if they can potentially invoke these strong entities that could deter them if they don't have control over themselves? Right, they could. And I would say beginners should learn to prepare themselves for that kind of practice because it takes a lot of discipline, you know. But there will have to come a time in which practitioners need to face themselves. So eventually that, we have to have that conflict, and it's never an easy thing. But of course, if you feel that you don't want to practice that early in the beginning, it's good because you may not feel ready for facing what you have to face. But with enough discipline... Where you learn to meditate at that hour easily. But yeah, as we were saying, with beginning practitioners, even working in alchemy at that hour is really powerful. But the couple's got to be trained. And I was going to mention that there are many people in the movement who basically are married and can begin work with alchemy, but they never even trained themselves in the beginning with transmutation as a bachelor. I always advise those students before really connecting again and really working in that way, it's good to train individually. 
as much as possible because couples who've been together for a long time and are used to procreating in the animal way and expelling the energies, they have a very difficult time if they connect because their, their body, the vital winds, are not flowing out to in but into out. And therefore, it's very difficult for them. But people who've been training for years on their own and then they get married, very quick and for them, very easy because they've established that discipline already. They have the foundation set. But it's not easy to say this for people who are already married who want to enter the science and they want to practice alchemy, but it's good to slow down in order to hasten. Yes? Yeah, so the tree of life has its shadow, which is Klipot, hell. Nine heavens, nine hells. The heavens of moon, Mercury, Venus, sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. Those heavens, those forces, when they are not returned back to the light, they descend down into the nine interior layers of the earth. The Muslims call that the tree of Zakum, the tree of death. And it's a little tree in the Middle East in which the leaves are so bitter to the taste that it's inedible, which became a symbol for hell. The inhabitants of hell eat from the tree of Zakum, which are all those forces devolving and entering the earth. And it's bitter to them, very painful. But nine inverted Sephiroth because there were nine hells, according to Dante. But in order to reach the nine heavens, as he taught in his Purgatorio and Paradiso, they have to descend down into hell first. In order to ascend, you have to descend. If you wish to be exalted, you must be humiliated through trials and ordeals. That is how we become tzadikim, righteous ones. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace. Thank you.